So I want to continue this week uh, exploring the theme that we started uh, last week, which is the theme of practicing with darkness. And we took the occasion of the uh, time of the winter solstice when there's the least amount of light and in a way it seems like the uh, external natural world is still and not so much happening. We took this as a starting point for inviting our own practice to deepen, in a sense, to be, to be like the earth at this time in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. And so what I want to do is to give a brief review of some of what we explored uh, last week, and then bring in some further themes that let us um, look in some other ways at this understanding of practicing uh, with the dark. A number of people who were here last time were invited to guide their own practice at home and during the week with some of the themes that we explored. So, for example, last week we explored four meanings of practicing with the darkness. The first was the darkness as suggesting stopping, much like the earth. The second theme, and I'll go over each of these briefly. The second theme was looking at the darkness as the difficult or the painful. Very common way that we use the word uh, dark. And can we be more skillful with what's difficult? A third theme that we looked at is the darkness as not knowing. As times when we either are uh, quote-unquote, in the dark about something important in our own lives, or not knowing in some other way, and wanted to invite the quality of being comfortable with not knowing as one of the meanings of uh, being with darkness. And then the fourth was having a sense of how darkness, in all of those senses, particularly the sense of not knowing or the sense of being with what's difficult or painful can sometimes, if we can be with those in a wise and skillful and compassionate way, that, uh, that being with the darkness can sometimes bring light. Can, in other words, the darkness can be uh, generative or fertile, again, using different kinds of metaphors. So we explored that last time and people, uh, most of those people, present wanted to see if they could take that as a guide to daily life, to daily practice. Can I have a sense that uh, this thing, this unresolved issue in my life, which I'd really like to have resolved, can I be with it uh, and be, be a little more comfortable, maybe less reactive with the unknown or with what's unresolved, and take it uh, in some ways as uh, a mystery since it's clearly not getting resolved. <laughs> and how can I approach that? So, uh, so I'll bring out those themes briefly and then also explore some further themes related to uh, darkness. I want to explore the sense of the dark in a way related to the sense of unknowing. I want to talk about the darkness as also the shadow or the shadow aspects of our experience. How do we explore those? And then a little bit more on the way that the uh, being with the dark can bring in a sense of uh, light, of actually coming from unknowing to knowing, of being with the difficult and having that yield uh, learning and insight and, in a sense, uh, being fruitful. Again, this goes, all of this goes against a lot of our habitual conditioning. Even though we know better, how many of us want our lives to be all set up so everything's nice and easy and set up on a platter, so to speak? How many of us want that despite knowing better? <laughs> okay, right, right, so that's, that's what we're exploring as we, you know, 
Um, and here's a, here's a nice poem from Wendell Berry, which can give us some encouragement. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. <laughs> go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. And again, it should be clear that in talking about uh, darkness and light, we're looking at uh, darkness through uh, a number of metaphors and that we're going against the tendency sometimes to use the dark as simply pointing to the negative, that we're seeing the dark as both having difficult aspects and having also a positive, fruitful, generative aspect. So it goes against a lot of the uh, social, cultural conditioning to see the dark more as negative, which I think is related to the history of seeing darker people, whether it's in Asia, you know, or in the U.S. as uh, not as worthy. I mean, interesting that that was the case also uh, in the India of the Buddha 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago. The caste system was in the process of being formed, and those at the bottom were those with darker skin. Right? It was the same. And you have you know, some similar metaphors appear there. And so again, we're using it consciously, understanding uh, darkness in a number of different ways. So the, the first sense of darkness, again, I'll give a brief review of what we actually looked at. Uh, the first sense of darkness is to be like the earth and to stop. And the encouragement last time was to really see if there can be a time during this time of greatest darkness in which we stop our usual doing, our usual busyness, and find a time for more quiet, maybe being uh, with what nourishes you, what brings renewal. You know, again, so one way to do that, of course, is to do retreat or your own version of retreat just a very valuable pursuit at this time. So even if it's one or two days, can you, can you find that? You know, can, we, can we connect with this, this sense of stopping the usual, as we would say now, unplugging from the electronic world? And uh, really just seeing what's there waiting for you, in a sense, looking at what your life is, wants to tell you right now. And to do that with the perspective that it can be easy, it can be difficult, it can be fun, it can be not fun, but it can also be deeply generative if we take that time. And again, for me, I really appreciate the fact that probably most of the last 35 or 40 years, at this time of year, there's been at least, typically at least a week of not the usual doing. You know, and uh, so that's partly the, the theme of stopping, is to see if that is possible, or see if that calls you, first of all, see if that resonates with you, to find a period of stopping, even if it's a day or two. And the, the theme of stopping also relates to, in a way, to our practice of meditation, which is very similar, in a sense, to a retreat that we may every day have a period of stopping in which the habitual mind has a chance to wind down. We have a chance to learn something, as it were, out beyond where the habitual conditioned mind stops. And so, again, so crucial, even if sometimes we sit down and we just have the habitual mind repeating itself. Does anyone have the experience of meditation as that? I can't, I've come here to stop. I've come here for the habitual conditioned mind to stop. But the habitual conditioned mind doesn't stop when I ask it to stop. I meditate, and that's what I experience. Anyone relate to that? So, so there we have um, special techniques, or special tools or perspectives. But in a way, even when we have uh, the habitual mind happening, if we can, as it were, be mindful of it and know it, it's different. It's not the same thing. 
It's not the same thing happening if we can actually track the usual mind. And so part of the invitation of stopping is to also do that daily, to find a time to stop, be present, see what's there, see one's experience with at least part of the mind not doing the old conditioned habitual thing. And that opens up the possibility of learning. So stopping can, can mean that. Again, we have uh, different ways that we can stop, see more clearly, and go more deeply. And again, the practices of stopping, stillness of the body can help, silence can help, having some respites from all the continued sounds, input, etc. Then the second theme that we looked at is practicing with the dark meaning being with the painful or difficult. Again, as I said last time, one of the great powers of our practice is having a different way of approaching being with what's difficult. Rather than simply wanting to get rid of what's difficult or painful, we learn how to, in a sense, open to it in a skillful way. And that permits uh, learning and transformation. It also permits us to see our habitual tendencies. What do we do when something unpleasant happens? And I gave that cartoon, uh, which, which I like a lot, which is worth repeating, of the young meditator sitting on a cushion with deep aspirations for spiritual growth saying, today I will live in the moment. Unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. <laughs> so there is an alternative, and maybe we get the cookie afterwards as well. But the alternative is to learn that simply reacting to the painful or the difficult or the unpleasant actually keeps the cycles going, the cycles of reactivity going. And so right at the center of our practice is learning how to be with the difficult and the unpleasant in a way that's not reactive which starts to transform everything and make everything different. But it's not always easy or fun, right? And I, I often, yeah, last time I, but I often joke about the fact that uh, a significant part of our practice is coming, meditating, having aspirations for bliss, wonderful experiences, learning. That's certainly what I did when I first started meditating. And then being sometimes presented with difficult experiences, say, I didn't come here for this. My knee hurts. What's going on? And people experience it, especially at retreats sometimes, because you sit you know, all day long. The first and second day at retreats can be quite difficult. And people said, why did I sign up for this? Right? And, but you stay with it, and something shifts. I mean, it's like anything, or it's like they have in the, what, the locker rooms you know, of uh, athletes. What, what do they say in some of the locker rooms? No pain, no gain. So, I, when I was um, a teacher, uh, I, I remember this especially, I taught at uh, universities for seven years, and particularly I taught, I taught several years at Kenyon College in Ohio, and I taught a large percentage of the football team. And they really loved these teachings. You know, they were, they were mostly not on their way to the pros. Right, this was, it was a small school and it was actually, you know, there weren't many people at the games and I, I went to some of the games and watched my students, I was like 15 from away from the, these people, you know, running at full steam, these people that weren't that big, running at full steam into other people and colliding, it was like, what are they doing? Uh, but um, they loved this teaching of, uh, of being skillful with what's painful or difficult, and they would talk to each other. We, you know, this is where we brought in the word dukkha. You know, the, the word dukkha is the word in the Buddhist teachings, which I like to translate as reactivity, along with the teaching that um, uh, the usual way that we work with the unpleasant is try to push it away. The painful, the difficult, the unpleasant, we often want to push it away. And the Buddha said this is like being shot by an arrow, which he called the first arrow, and then instead of being skillful with that first arrow, shooting a second arrow as if that would help. That's the reactivity. That would be tensing around physical pain 
or blaming oneself or blaming someone else or making negative comments or whatever. These are all what he called shooting the second arrow. And that's really what the Buddha meant by dukkha. You know, it wasn't that, it's, so when he talks about getting rid of dukkha, it's not getting rid of the pain, but it's getting rid of reactivity. That's what the whole aspiration of the whole path is. Reactivity comes in two forms, pushing away compulsively, unconsciously, and grabbing hold compulsively or unconsciously. And the center of our practice, which we can explore you know, in uh, the small ways that we do that or the big ways, is that there's another way possible that we can be non-reactive, even with something difficult or painful. And that's actually a way to move towards healing, towards interpersonal, uh, what, collaboration, reconciliation, and that uh, much of the world is in the throes of being reactive. You know, we look inwardly, we see that, we look outwardly, we see that. And so those of us who can be skillful with reactivity, whether it's in your own mind or body or heart, or in your relationships, that person is someone deeply needed in the world. Because, you know, in many ways, reactivity organizes much of the world. Or we would say, you know, in Buddhist terminology, sometimes it's said greed, hatred, and delusion. Because the reactivity is only there because we have a certain level of delusion. We think this is a good idea. Right? So that's the, the second uh, aspect of going into the dark is to be able to be more skillfully with the difficult, the painful, the challenging aspects of experience. And the core of the teaching is, as I gave, the fine points are, you know, are detailed. How, some of what we looked at last time in our discussion, how do I work with someone who comes at me with negative comments, right? Not easy, right? How can I be skillful and not just reactive? It's hard not to be reactive. Someone comes at you being judgmental. What do you do? Many of us will react and just be judgmental right back to that person, which, uh, many relationships pivot around that dynamic, don't they? Because right? none of us like to be judged or blamed, right? So how do we work with that? And we, you know, again, there are a number of different ways that we explored of being with the difficult or painful. Part of it is to be able to be open to being with the difficult or painful when it's in the workable range. So I, can I meditate and be with a difficult emotion? Even sometimes with what's physically unpleasant, when I know that it's not causing damage. Can I be for five minutes with an uncomfortable sensation in my shoulders, even when my mind is saying, why am I doing this? Let's get out of here, right? And this is, can, this would also be what the athletes learn under the idea of no pain, no gain, right? That you have to be sometimes with its difficulty. You know, I was a competitive swimmer for 10 years, you know, and got to a pretty high level. I was, you know, in, in university, I, would, I was practicing with people who were Olympians, and I could kind of keep up with them in practice. <laughs> in the meets, there was another question. So, I, but uh, anyway, but a lot of that time was not, not very pleasant, right? It was something you have to just keep going, because there's something that happens when you stay with what's difficult. And, and so, uh, Part of it is the capacity to be with what's difficult without instantly running away. And we can train for that in our meditation. We can train for that. I mentioned also that if we're taking this on as a practice, it's really important at times to be with the wonderful, the beautiful, internally in meditations, through loving-kindness practice, through practices that bring joy. If we're spending a certain amount of time with the difficult, really crucial to have balance for our minds by going also sometimes to what's wonderful, beautiful, nourishing, enhancing. So if this is a time in our lives when there's a fair amount of difficulty, it's actually skillful to deliberately go to what's nourishing, beautiful, wonderful. If it's a difficult time for you, deliberately be with the beauty of the forest or the mountains or the ocean every day. You know, I once took as a practice to be with uh, the beauty of the natural world uh, every day for an hour. Wonderful practice. And especially if there's a time of difficulty, that's very skillful and wise. 
So we find ways to do that. Again, there's a lot, you know, I think we've had series sometimes where we could take 10 sessions and go into the fine details. You know, one of the most challenging ones is how to bring that into interactions when you have negative stuff coming at you. How do you act skillfully in terms of speaking? Again, we looked at that a lot of you in the discussion time last time. So we have that sense of uh, the second uh, way of being with the dark, practicing with the dark, is to uh, be with the difficult. The third was to be with, uh, with not knowing, to be with, uh, to be with the sense of um, unresolved issues in our lives, or a time when we simply don't know. You know, and I talked about that as as quite important, and, and uh, the not knowing has an individual meaning, and I think it also has a collective meaning. And I, I mentioned the uh, teaching uh, that's very interesting, and I'll go into a little more this time, that it's been interesting and important for me, which is that of the, what's sometimes called the dark night, uh, which is a term developed by the Catholic mystic, uh, St. John of the Cross, Spanish mystic who lived in the end of the uh, 16th century. He talked about the dark night of the soul as a time when, he talked about it as an intermediate or advanced level of spiritual development. It's not a beginning experience when one actually has quite a bit of insight and quite a bit of uh, deep uh, understanding and then for whatever reason things go dry. You know, it could be because of loss. It could be because of Difficulty. There's, there's a really, uh, there's a beautiful book which I like by a woman named Mirabai Starr who lives in New Mexico. Anyone know her work? Yeah, very interesting. I did a, I did a workshop with her on the dark night of the soul, and she writes about this in relationship to a period that she went through after her 14-year-old daughter died in an automobile accident, and it, it, it just, uh, she again, she was. She had been a teacher and quite developed. I think she was an author before that. And she went through a several year period of being knocked off her center of gravity by what happened and being confused and what previously nourished her no longer nourished her. And we can probably, many of us or most of us have tasted that for a shorter period of time, right? It's not the same thing as ordinary depression, right? It's a, it's a little bit different. I can have elements of that. Um, for her, it was triggered by loss. This is what she said uh, about that experience. This is in a book that was sort of a memoir, which, which I liked a lot. It's called Caravan of No Despair. Caravan of No Despair. It's a reference to a line in a poem by Rumi where he says, ours is not a caravan of despair. <laughs> so she used that, that line. So caravan of no despair, this is what she said. With reticence at first and then courage, I dared to grieve my child. I practiced turning towards a feeling that I did not think I could survive. Abiding with what is, I sat with that. I did this as an act of devotion to my daughter, saying yes to the mystery, expressing my ongoing love for her. And showing up, she said, for a devastating loss was an act of love. I wasn't trying to be spiritual. I knew that it was all about love, it was all that I could do. And there was, again, this was uh, continually showing up for pain that didn't have any sign of ending with that. And again, we may have had versions of that that we've experienced. Again, loss can often trigger that. Or, um, you know, some kind of uh, pain that comes out of the blue that kind of upsets uh, the way our lives are. And uh, St. John of the Cross said that, that there's a period, there's a kind of unknowing here that is really crucial. He said, he, he said that a very significant time is, uh, is one in which we don't know, and we have to be more comfortable with not knowing. Again, I think this is something 
a very ordinary part of our practice that, again, it was encouraging us at the beginning of our meditation, can I really be with not knowing? Again, a lot of us in our meditation, we just try to make something pleasant and calm happen. Can I be with radical unknowing for the half hour that I meditate? And say, I don't know what's going to happen. Let me be alive to the mystery. This moment has never occurred before. What's going to happen? Right? Can I do that? You know? Because we get in habits with meditation, right? We get habits that we kind of go towards, all just have this pleasant experience. Can I be with the mysterious? And we, so we do that in a very ordinary way. We can do that maybe in regard to some project. Again, have a sense of not knowing what will happen, even at the same time that we do our best. We can do that with activism. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, with my climate activism, right? It doesn't look good in some ways, right? But can I still have uh, full effort, but, have, but be okay with not knowing? This is like I, I said last week, when I brought up, the, when my, uh, we br- my colleague and I, Diana Winston and I, were teaching on the theme of not knowing for several years, and she brought the theme of not knowing to a group of teenagers. And they said, you can't just have not knowing, you have to have not knowing and keep going. So they made it rhyme, right? So, so I like that, you know, so I, we, we, we agree. And so can I have not knowing, but keep going in everything that's important to me, but sometimes not know and keep doing things. And, you know, one story that I remember a lot was when, when also when I was uh, teaching at the um, University of Kentucky, I also was teaching a large number of football players. And this particular class, was uh, in the evening during football season. So it was a class at 7.30. It was a required class in ethics. I mean, on the one hand, we could be happy they were taking an ethics course, but it was required. They could either take my class in ethics or they could take a mathematics course. (laughs) We had high enrollment. (laughs) And so, but what's just happened before they come at 7.30? Dinner, what's happened before dinner? Practice. practice. How many hours of practice? This was University of Kentucky. I think they did four or five hours of practice. It was a while. And then they had a big dinner, and then they came to my class. <laughs> I was an earnest young teacher who wanted everyone to pay attention and really learn and. Uh, that didn't work very well for very long, right? And so, you know, after about a month, it didn't feel like it was going well. And of course, they were, they weren't just, uh, you know, sleepy and full. They they mostly wanted to sleep, right? That's what they most wanted. But if they couldn't sleep and they had to be there, they could at least uh, joke and sabotage the class in my mind, right? And so uh, that's what they did. And I got very frustrated. I would say from hind- with hindsight, there was some reactivity. <laughs> and, um, but at a certain point, I remembered a teaching I had heard, uh, the teaching which was from the uh, Indian tradition, the Bhagavad Gita. It was, a, it was similar to this uh, teaching of not knowing. It was a teaching of, uh, what was it called, uh, action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. It came from the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it was sort of the fruit of that teaching. It was a teaching that guided Gandhi, it was, it was especially when he didn't know what was happening. It, you know, that he would act and he would do what he totally thought was the right thing, but he wouldn't get attached to the results of his actions. So I remembered that and said, nothing else is working, let's try this. And it was, but it's a kind of not knowing where I would just do my best and just let things be whatever they were. But I would really try to do my best. And I did that for the rest of the semester. And I would, you know, I said, okay, I'm not sure what's going to happen. They may, you know, I may, you know, they may not show up or whatever happens, I'm just going to be there. And so I taught and it certainly uh, lessened my reactivity (laughs) to have that approach. And at the end of the semester, I couldn't say that I thought it had gone well particularly. I was just had done my best. But then, after uh, the end of the semester, I was very surprised by a number of the, the football players came by 
and they told me it was the best class they'd ever taken. And mind you, this is after grades had been turned in. <laughs> right? And they told me it was the best, and I said, whoa, you know, good teaching, I'll have to remember that. <laughs> You know, so it's a form of not knowing that we can have. Again, I think it's very relevant for all sorts of activities, right? To do one's best, that uh, keep going, but have a sense of not knowing. So there are many ways that we could bring that in. It's a powerful uh, teaching that we can keep on acting skillfully. Again, I think very crucial for our time. And again, St. John of the Cross said it was very, very crucial for these times of the dark night. He's, this, is, this, is what, this is one of his lines. He said, the soul, and this is using Christian language, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. The soul walks to God through human unknowing. Powerful statement, right? We can translate that into your own framework, but uh, stressing the, the importance of unknowing. And it points to, it points to, in, in, in the dark night, he actually stays with it. And of course, in his account, he comes out in, eventually into light and understanding. So another theme I wanted to bring up is the theme of the shadow, which is a, a wonderful theme related to the darkness. And many of you are familiar with the understanding of the shadow, concept of the shadow. It's especially a term that's used in psychology. And many, most people credit it to the psychologist Carl Jung. And the shadow, each of us have a shadow, and there's also a collective shadow. The shadow is basically those parts of our experience which stay in the dark, which we don't want to look at. And we all have a certain kind of shadow. There's a nice book, I have a, a friend who wrote a book uh, I brought it along named Robert Masters, wrote a book called Bringing Your Shadow Out of the Dark, which is a nice uh, workbook. And so the, the shadow um, is especially the negative parts of our experience that we don't want to look at, that we sort of suppress, often unconsciously, often at a young age. Uh, Jung said the shadow of the individual is the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. Right? So it might be our anger. Our anger might be part of our shadow. If I grew up in a family where anger was uh, suppressed, anger might be part of my shadow. And I might not know how to deal with either anger coming at me or anger that arises in myself, and I might just suppress it. That would be part of the shadow. For some people, the shadow could be sexuality, right? I'm uncomfortable with this area of life. I don't want to deal with it, right? It could be, what are some other shadow areas that occur to you that could be part of the shadow, individual shadow? You can just speak up. Raise your hand, maybe speak up. Just one word. Yeah. Guilt or What? Guilt or shame. I might be ashamed about some part of my life and I just can't go there, right? And if someone brings it up, I don't want to talk about it, right? That could be part of the shadow. And again, we put stuff in the shadow often to protect ourselves. So it's not like it's totally negative. It often we do that because of it's the best thing we know how to do at a certain time. What else could be part of the shadow? Fear. Fear. You know, something I'm afraid of, right? I'm, maybe I'm, you know, public opinion uh, surveys say that most people are afraid of um, public speaking. You know, the surveys show that people are more scared of public speaking than of death. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I can relate to that. I'm kind of, you know, basically my background is being rather introverted. And the first time I ever gave a public talk, I, said, I don't know if I've said this, but... I would, luckily, I was behind a desk, but my knees were like moving about two feet, with, you know, like that. So they're knocking continually. It was anyway. So I might, you know, or I, you know, expressing myself in public might be part of my shadow, or speaking up when it's uncomfortable might be part of the shadow. Again, it could be related to family dynamics. And does that give us a sense of any? Anyone else have something you want to 
bring up fear, something I'm afraid of, right? Anyone, anything else occur to you? Failure. Yeah, failure. You know, the, the parts of my life where, I haven't, where it hasn't gone like I want, where I think I failed, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about it and so forth. And so in the psychological traditions, these areas of the shadow are, as it were, kept in the dark, but it actually is something, can be a place of great growth to go into the shadow, right? That it actually, to really the, often the motivation of some of those traditions, like in the psychology of Jung, is to be whole. It's to really be connected with all of the parts of yourself. And I think there, there are negative aspects. I, th- I think that there's a lot that we could call positive, which is also in the shadow. You know, that uh, sometimes our beautiful qualities, our wonderful shining qualities, our brilliance, or our, even our, the depths of our spirituality, sometimes are part of our shadow. One of the ways that we see shadow is that we project onto people. Do you know the concept of projection? That that which we don't recognize in ourselves or don't want to recognize, we project out onto others where we see it as a problem, right? And so, again, that's with the negative. So if I have anger as part of my shadow, I'm going to be critical of people who get angry, right? And I'm going to project on their bad people, angry people, right? And so forth. Or I might, uh, I might project, I don't want to look at my failure, I might really emphasize other people who fail. It goes outward. Uh, Jung said, that which we don't look at in ourselves, we tend to project outward onto others. And he said, where we often encounter those others as demonic or negative, right? And projection is a very, very powerful phenomenon. So we often see people, uh, even in high places occasionally, <laughs> uh, projecting on, not seeing things in themselves and seeing them only in others, right? It's very common. It's very common. But there's also the way that I think part of the shadow is our beautiful quality. Sometimes we don't see that and we project onto others. I, I like to think that one of the reasons that we uh, have so much, that many people are so much interested in so-called stars is that they don't see their own brilliance. And they think, oh, the people who are having good lives, those are the movie stars or the uh, sports stars or whatever. They're wonderful and I'm not so good. I think there's a shadow there also. And so the shadow work would be seeing what's kept in the dark, which could be the negative qualities and could be the positive qualities. And we also do this collectively. There is what we could call a collective shadow, that when we don't look at things, we want to just stuff stuff. You know, what would be an example of a collective shadow? Racism. What? Racism. Racism, right? So we don't really want to look necessarily very carefully at painful historical moments in our history. We've, you know, never looked too carefully at what actually happened in slavery or in Jim Crow. And some people want to look at it, but by and large the society hasn't. And in certain moments people look more carefully or what happened with native people, right? You know, uh, some cultures, some societies do that, like they have what we would call truth and reconciliation commissions, like what happened in South Africa which was probably the most advanced coming to grips with a negative past and dealing with the collective shadow that's ever happened. And yet that too had limits on how far they wanted to go. You know? And so what would it be like to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the United States? You know? You know, or to actually try to acknowledge, you know, maybe even consider reparations for what happened during slavery, right? To try to heal. But as long as people don't want to deal with it, it's in the collective shadow, nothing gets done and actually the same things repeat themselves. That's what happens when something is in the shadow, right? And so we could, we could see all these different uh, forms like this. Um, there's a line from uh, Thomas Merton. Let me see if I can find this. He talks about some of the dynamics. He doesn't use the word shadow. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves. And he's talking about the the shadow aspects, I think, particularly that hatred of ourselves, which is too deep 
and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. Or we could say our own dark territory, our own difficult territory. So how do we work with that? You know, there are multiple ways to, to work with shadow material. You know, and many of the psychological traditions have worked out ways. Working with dreams is an amazing way to work with a shadow, right? How many of you have done some work with dreams? You know, some creative work with dreams. It's a powerful way because guess what comes out in the dream? The shadow will come there frequently. And so attending to dreams can be a very powerful way. We see a lot of, you know, what happens in meditation is when we minimize the input, stuff starts bubbling up from what's unconscious. And so meditation is also a very skillful way to work with the shadow. And there are all sorts of ways. One can work uh, psychologically, one can work with ritual, uh, collective rituals. A lot of the cultures, we can interpret a lot of the rituals of ancient cultures as ways to deal with the collective shadow. You know, whether it's about loss, grief, or uh, finding ways to work with it. I, I once uh, was invited to be, I think I've mentioned this a few times, to be part of a potlatch in British Columbia with uh, what they call their First Nations people. And this was like a three-day ceremony that went on from 3 p.m. till 3 a.m. And well, part of what they did in these three days, they had a lot of ceremonies. One of the ceremonies involved uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse being involved in a dance with victims of sexual abuse, which is a pervasive issue in those communities. And, but they actually brought it more into the open and had people openly admit they did that. And they had actually, it was pretty intense, you could imagine. They had healing ceremonies for those kind of uh, uh, materials, which again, in our culture, largely go into the collective shadow. Right? So very, there are different ways to, to work with that. So I wanted to uh, go back and expand a little bit more on the last area is the going into the darkness, particularly if we, st if we stay with the difficult, the painful, the, uh, and stay with the unknowing, that the darkness can be generative and fertile and lead more into the light. Again, in this uh, mysterious, mysterious way. And again, one has to be willing to go into all these territories or the, or the fruits don't occur. Right? And again, culturally speaking, most of us are not trained to do this. You know, we, so we have to learn other ways to do this. <clears throat> this is from the Jewish tradition. This is a, a teacher named Rav Cook. Everyone must know and understand that deep within them burns a candle. And no one's candle is identical with the candle of their friend. And there is no human being who has no candle. Each of us needs to know and understand that it is incumbent upon uh, one to work to reveal the light of the candle to humanity and to ignite it into a huge blazing torch to enlighten the entire planet. Whoa. So the candle gets illuminated, one of the fruits again, when we stay with what's difficult, that there, there are gifts. There are gifts from, the, from being with the dark. You know, and I mentioned, uh, I think the story last time of um, Gandhi staying with the unknown uh, at a time in his life when he didn't know what to do with the Indian independence movement. And somehow that led into six weeks of sitting on his porch doing nothing, not knowing what to do, which opened up into the idea to have the salt march where they would march to the sea which historians say was a pivotal, pivotal moment in the whole independence movement, came out of six weeks of not knowing, but having the confidence, I will hear the inner voice if I just am comfortable with not knowing and stay here. So we can know the fruits. You know, think of, again, maybe Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison. Clearly he understood some, a lot of the aspects of what we're talking about. He could have been bitter, and negative, but there were, seemed to be incredible fruits from that really difficult time, right? 
How many of you can think of fruits from your own from your own difficult times that you stayed with and just didn't try to get rid of? You know? So I think if we look, we probably can 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 notice this. And in the in the teachings about the dark night, maybe I'll I'll finish with this. In the teachings of the dark night, there is a sense that if you stay with the difficulty, you stay with the darkness, the not knowing, that it actually opens up into something beautiful and luminous. Um, this is from uh, this is from one of the poems that Saint John wrote again from the end of the 16th century. This is uh, actually translated by Mirabai Star. She's done some quite wonderful translations. Whoever arrives in the land of unknowing becomes free. Everything that one thought, that one knows, falls away, and one's consciousness expands to unfold the whole universe. This circle transcends all thought. The higher one ascends, the less one understands. The dark cloud that lights up the night reveals itself as pure mystery. The knower rests in unknowing. This dark light transcends all thought. So you see this pointing to, this is a through the, a deeper meditative state of going beyond habitual thinking in the unknowing. Such unknowing, such knowing by unknowing is so exalted, so potent, that there is not a thinker alive who can grasp it with his mind, who can reach that high. We can only understand by not understanding. This wisdom transcends all thought. And there's a, a way that, in, in that example, being with that dark night opens up to something uh, luminous and light that is, that, is, that is sacred, a kind of sacred light. And uh, John thought that this is actually a kind of a test as one deepens uh, spiritually that there can be these times where one doesn't know, which can feel dry and fruitless, but one has to somehow stay with them and have a certain, uh, I guess you could call it faith or confidence. <clears throat> and to touch that, that deeper sense of knowing sometimes only opens up with the not knowing. That's what's being pointed to and that, that eventually opens up to something luminous in one's own being that can, that can arise. In a way, the Buddha went through a similar process that you could, I, haven't, I don't have time to bring it up so much now, but you can interpret the life of the Buddha, which we, you know, when we actually look at it, he went through a lot of hard times, a lot of confusion, a lot of not knowing for six years. And then at a certain point, things started opening up. And he touched something uh, bright and luminous. He later said, uh, this mind is originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. So he's pointing in that way, but he went through something like a dark night, we could say. Let me finish just with one poem and then we'll talk together some. This is from, this is related to, I think, a lot of the themes. This is a nice poem uh, from uh, Jane Hirschfield, who lives in Marin, lives in, I think, in Mill Valley, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. uh, Three times, she says, my life has opened. Okay, so I'll finish with this poem. Three times my life has opened. Once into darkness and rain. Once into what the body carries at all times within it and starts to remember each time it enters the act of love. Once to the fire that holds all. These three were not different. You will recognize what I'm saying or you will not. But outside my window all day a maple has stepped from its, her leaves like a woman in love with winter dropping the colored silks. Neither are we different in what we know. There is a door, it opens, then it is closed, but a slip of light stays 
like a scrap of unreadable paper left on the floor or the one red leaf the snow, the snow releases in March. So that poem doesn't wrap everything up neatly, but it both points to the themes of the talk and leaves us with a little bit of unknowing. <laughs> so let me end with that. Thank you. Again, I'm going to invite people. How many of you would like to work with the theme in the next week coming leading up to the winter solstice? to work with one of these themes of not knowing or difficulty or darkness. So I'll ask that again at the end. So have some time for any observations, questions, maybe people who explored this in the last week could also share what you explored. Could be, it could be a story from the last week. Please, yeah. Let's say our names as we speak also. Uh, Pamela, and what I uh, tried to do this past week was to monitor my body. If it got tight, hmm. then I would wait until it wasn't tight before I spoke or reacted. Hmm. It was a challenging week. And what I learned from that is that I spoke less reactively and less angrily. Yeah. And generally less. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And and did you take some notes and or just kind of have a sense of what was happening? I wrote no notes down, but it was very obvious. Yeah, very obvious. So and what helped you what helped you remember to keep doing that all week? Because you could have that aspiration, but what helps you to just remember every day, this is what I want to do. I have a choleric temperament, so I was very determined to do this all week. Really determined, yeah, thank you. It's a great example, right? Please, yeah. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I used to lead these women's group, and this was one of the things we explored. And um, one moment for me, um, it was my exercise that I was surprised at how it challenged me and opened something up. We would say, what would be one word that would be the worst word you can imagine, like someone writing about you in a newspaper. Mm. Um, it was really interesting because it spanned the gamut from like fat to uh, like liar, which, mm. which was actually mine. Um, and then what you would do is you would, sh I mean, I think part of the way the shame works is it's very black and white. Like, yeah. It's 100% bad, there's no movement, there's no shade of gray. And so we would run around and say, well, what could possibly be good about being a liar? And I honestly was like, you guys aren't going to be able to do this. Mm. Like, even though we did it with everybody else's mm. word, and well, there was like, you know, creative, imaginative, um, you know, resilient, um, a lot of words that they felt like came out of liar, and um, I felt like a lot less shame around this yeah. word. It's a really... It was a really powerful exercise. Yeah, that's wonderful. So that, this would be an example of what we would call shadow work, which is often done very skillfully in groups. And um, one of the aspects that um, you really directly address, this is connected with the shadow. I, I remember reading uh, the author Brene Brown, who writes a lot about shame. And she says that uh, shame requires um, essentially silence. And that when you start publicizing the shame, a lot of things change. It's like when you bring it out of the shadow, uh, things shift. It still can be painful, but it's not, it becomes a little more workable. It's much like what we try to do in meditation. We try to take what's difficult and make it workable, rather than just uh, something entirely negative. So, and that was done in a group where people had been meeting with each other, and so you had a certain level of trust and connection. And so that, that would be what was required, but this would be exactly an example of shadow work going into that aspect of darkness. And um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Kind of reminds me of uh, 
when I was studying uh, to be a clown, uh, enrolled in the Clown School of San Francisco, we did, we did very much like that. The whole principle of the clown work was to bring stuff out from your shadow and public, not, not only publicize it, but exaggerate it. You know, so I, I think I've mentioned sometimes one of our first exercises was to develop your clown walk. So you, you, you would walk before a group of 20 people and they'd make all sorts of comments about what was really funny or weird about the way you walk. You know, like, you know, you know how does your butt move or whatever. And, um, and then, you know, as the uh, aspiring clown, you would take their feedback and let it, you would exaggerate what they were mentioning. You know, so you'd, you'd, t you'd take something which, you know, in another context could be shameful, and you would publicize it and exaggerate it. Not everyone survived the initial training. <laughs> other other, uh, other reports, or, or it could be questioned about anything. Or comment, or... Please, yeah. What if there's shadows that you're not really aware of? I mean, is it sort of come to you during meditation or? Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's a great question, you know, because um, the whole idea of the shadow is that we're not very aware of it, if at all, right? So how do you become aware of the shadow? So like I said, there are a number of different mechanisms. Um, I think when we sit in meditation, uh, part of what happens, especially if you do it for a while, or especially when you do something like a retreat, more intensive training, is that shadow material starts coming to the surface more. You know, that uh, I know for me, you know, some of my first retreats, I had retreats where there was a lot of fear came up, which I was not in touch with. Uh, fear, desire to control, uh, anger, stuff which I would have uh, not said was really part of my psyche, came up, especially with doing retreats. So you could see some of this in meditation. Um, uh, you could see it from... Uh, dreams are, again, a very good way to see what's there and to, to maybe work with someone who's skilled in understanding dream work. You know, that could be, a, could, you know, and of course, you have to learn how to, we have to learn how to uh, be attentive to dreams and actually record them a lot, you know, and that's a whole art form in itself. Maybe some, I, dreams have been really important for me. I've never talked about dreams here on Wednesdays. How many would like to explore dreams a little bit? Okay, okay. I take that as a, a yes. <laughs> okay, but so dreams are a very good uh, vehicle. Sometimes we can use some help both in, in uh, accessing dreams and then in um, understanding them. Um, sometimes people who are very close to us are very happy to tell us what our shadow is. <laughs> right, so, uh, but you may not want to hear it from them. Right, uh, so, so those, those are good forms. Again, like I say, um, sometimes just being willing to open to it could, could be helpful. You know, or, you know, again, if you would work with, a, sometimes with a psychologist or someone who was skilled in this, wouldn't necessarily be a psychologist, there, there would be exercises and ways of exploring that would help you uh, bring that out. You know, some, one of the ways that we, uh, you know, we, we could have some questions, maybe like your question, we could say, where do I feel shame? Right? That could be a very important guiding question. And you, of course, we, we need that inquiry to occur where we feel pretty safe. Right? That kind of inquiry. But it could be that kind of question. That, you know, some things would be a doorway. You know, and then a lot of the areas that we call areas of the collective shadow, like around race or gender or the climate, all of those have their, also their manifestations individually. So we all, we all have conditioning. That's part of our shadow around the collective issues as well. Also projection. What? Projection is a really good way to work. Pro yeah, very, very good. Yeah. 
so another good way to look at it is, is looking at where you project. Where are you a little bit too eager to criticize someone? Where might there be something like we, what we call projection, where it's actually about you, but you tend to be very uh, reactive and intense about someone else? So that would be, that, that really points to the fact, look at where the major forms of reactivity are, and there's probably going to be shadow material there. Like, where am I really reactive? There's going to be shadow stuff there. That's a great question, right? Because how do we know what we don't know? <laughs> so we engage in practices which are there to help us explore the unknown. That's one, one quick answer. That's a great topic, and thank you. I'm, I've been hesitant to uh, talk about dreams here, because partly because it's really not much of a focus in the traditional teachings of the Buddha, like in the suttas. It is a focus in, like, in Tibetan tradition. And there are really wonderful, amazing practices of uh, what are called dream and sleep yoga, uh, which are fairly esoteric. <laughs> but I, I, I have explored those. But uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as, in, as guidance. But it's really fun. Uh, and uh, maybe time for one more, if there's anyone who was wanting to speak. Okay, maybe last one, yeah. I can project. <laughs> oh. um, this isn't really about darkness per se, but I just wanted to observe that no matter when I show up at Spirit Rock, no matter who's talking or what the topic is, it always feels perfect <laughs> for whatever I'm going through, and I would imagine that's true yeah. for many people. And was it, it was that way today? Very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, hopefully, you know, one way, uh, it's interesting, yeah, but I mean, hopefully most of what's here we touch on at least some of the deeper teachings which are so relevant for so much, you know, like just talking about reactivity, for example. That, that's so, so widely applicable. Great. So again, how many of you would like to look some in the next week at some aspect of darkness, darkness is stopping, or the uh, difficulty or not knowing, great. So just take a moment and bring to mind what you'd like to explore. And also ask yourself, what's going to help me remember? And remember this beyond, you know, an hour from now. What do I want to explore and what's going to really help me have this be something I do every day? And we close with uh, the usual way we close here, a traditional brief practice called the Dedication of Merit, where we invite the fruits of our mourning to be there for each of us, to be there for others in our own lives. But then we keep the, we let the horizon expand and may the fruits of our mourning together be offered to all beings which includes us and includes those in our own circles. May it be a benefit to all beings. So, thank you again for your kind attention and your, uh, your own practice and creativity. So, um, I'll let Sylvia know what we've been exploring and she can see how she likes to 
uh, work with the themes. Uh, but I'll, I'll be back, I think, uh, it'll be about uh, five weeks, I think. So I think Sylvia will be here the next four weeks. And I'll be back uh, for a few times the uh, latter part of January. I think January 16th is when I'm scheduled to come back. So thanks again, and uh, to be continued. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.